Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cinema Joes. This is the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin, and I'm joined here by Alex. Hey, Justin. And we're also uh, graced with the presence of Noah. Hello, Noah. It's such a nice way of putting it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, much nicer than you introduced me. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you got this toss pot Alex over here. Well, you know, we do so many episodes, I have to play favorites sometimes. Speaking of favorites... Whoa! (laughs) Well, for our listeners who aren't familiar, uh, this is the podcast where we usually talk about a recent movie release and then some kind of broader topic related to said movie release. But this week, we're going to be looking back on the year 2018 and talking about some of our favorite films from the year, some of our favorite performances. We're doing a slightly different format than we did for 2017, which uh, we'll introduce the categories as we uh, as we go along here. And uh, we'll also be foregoing our What We've Been Watching segment just to kind of dive into our favorite films of 2018. So uh, with that said, we're going to be starting out with our, our favorite big budget movie of last year, of which there were many good ones. So I want to start with you, Alex. What was your favorite? So my favorite big budget movie from this year is, I think, the most iconic film from 2018, and that is Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. This is the definition of a big budget film. It had a $200 million budget. It still managed to make over $500 million of profit domestically. <laughs> it was the biggest film this year in terms of box office uh, domestically, and it came in second to Avengers Infinity War worldwide. It is an incredible miracle of a movie where it is a total superhero fantasy epic, which also embeds this really interesting layered conversation about race and about culture and about what the African-American community owes to itself and how that interacts with the wider world. It features tremendous performances by Michael B. Jordan and Lupita Nyong'o and Chadwick Boseman to a lesser extent. He's the star of the film. He has kind of the less interesting role, unfortunately, in the movie. But I think that he holds the center in a really effective way. Um, and I think Kugler's direction is really great. There's some really great action, especially that waterfall sequence. Everybody knows Black Panther. Everybody loves Black Panther. I don't need to go into depth about it, but it's definitely among my favorite films of the year. And it's 100% the best film in this category. I don't disagree with you in any of those points. I, I loved Black Panther. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I was probably the coolest on it of us, but I still think it was like among the best for sure. But Noah, I think you may contradict Alex, at least the point of it being the best big budget film of 2018 because i think you have your own favorite of last year and i have a funny feeling i know what it is but please tell our listeners all right so my favorite is aquaman just kidding no (laughs) (laughs) no no no. my favorite big budget movie slash possibly my favorite movie of the year is spider-man into the Spider-Verse. It's painfully hard for me to try to pick between those two because I absolutely love Black Panther and Spider-Man. Both of these movies are going to be in my top 10 list, at least. I feel myself personally being drawn towards Spider-Man a bit more for a couple of reasons. One being that it is an animated film. As I've said before, when I'm trying to decide between two films that I think overall are equally excellent, but if one of them's animated and one of them's live action, I'm going to go with the animated movie every time just because I'm I'm really, really passionate about 
all things animation and, and about all of the incredibly really limitless opportunities that good animation offers for good storytelling. And Spider-Man was the best animated movie of the year. It really takes the possibilities of animation and just, it goes all out in terms of using that method and using the very unique style of the movie to tell its story in a way that, yeah, like Black Panther, this is very much the classic hero's journey with character setups, with lines of dialogue, with actions, with relations to the characters that are set up early, that are built up throughout the second act and then pay off in various ways in the third act. So in terms of its structure, like it's very, very classic, um, but it's a perfect example, like Black Panther, of, hey, if you take an old storytelling structure that's fine if you just do it to a T and make every part of the movie incredibly excellent. I said in our full review of this movie that it's pretty much the closest thing from this past year to a perfect movie. And so that gave it just a slight edge over Black Panther. There, there are more small details in Black Panther that I could nitpick about and say, oh, this scene or that moment didn't work as well as an equivalent scene in Spider-Man did. Also, another factor that's slightly tips it. I'm in the process of compiling my best original film music list for the year. Spider-Man and Black Panther are both going to top that list. Spider-Man gets the edge though for me because I felt it was just more adventurous and ambitious in terms of how there are all sorts of different styles and influences that perfectly mesh together. So though all those factors together, the fact that it's such a unique animated movie with the best original music in any movie of the year that gave it the slight edge for me. Yeah, I mean, for me, currently, they're number seven and eight on my top ten list of the year. So I obviously think very highly of Spider-Verse as well. I think for me, Black Panther gets the edge just because it creates such an incredible real world in Wakanda uh, that is just amazing to see and so inventive and interesting. And again, that they were able to layer in a critique of colonialism into a Marvel movie and have it be the most successful film of the year is just pretty it's just a pretty incredible feat. But I agree that Spider-Verse is also an incredible feat in entirely different ways. All right, Justin, we've taken the two best options. <laughs> well, so, yeah, because really for me, it was like these two movies and then everything else, honestly. I could go with another one, though, which I also very much enjoyed. Maybe not quite as interesting on an intellectual level as Black Panther or Into the Spider-Verse, but uh, Mission Impossible Fallout was a pretty terrific terrific yes. action movie these last two entries in the in the franchise with christopher mcquarrie uh taking over directing he's really amped up the set pieces i think these are like among some of the best action scenes i've ever seen and there's just so many in fallout that i would say are like just memorable and would be the kinds of things that i would want to teach to people who like want to film good action of course you would have to add the caveat of like you would need people like Tom Cruise, who are willing to put themselves in lethal danger <laughs> in order to capture some of these stunts. There's this incredible, I mean, it's been talked about a lot, but there's a um, what's called a high altitude, low opening jump or a halo jump. And I love the fact that they do it like, I think it's him and Henry Cavill going into uh, this, uh, this place in Paris, I believe. And the way that's filmed, though, is where they actually had to, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, but I believe they had to, they couldn't find a cinematographer who had the experience with, with this kind of jump. And so they needed to get like a photographer and train him how to be a cinematographer so that he could 
film this, which I think is just a testament to like how all out this film production team went to capture some of these stunts. When we think about action movies, I think we tend to think about people performing like incredible feats of strength or agility or whatever, and doing so in a way that shows how how they fly in the face of death and how how courageous or, you know, they are. And, and here you really get this sense of vulnerability from Tom Cruise. The fact that he's doing performing the stunt but also just the way the camera stays like on his eyes and you hear his breathing in that sequence is really effective and makes it so much more than just an action scene you just get the sense of someone who knows the kind of danger they're in and adds this real tension to a lot of these scenes there's also an incredible fight scene in a bathroom in this movie oh it's um, so at good one point and they've shown in the trailers a lot, but I just get when I saw in the movie, it still made me uh, still made me smile when Henry Cavill basically like almost like cocks his fists or like like reloads almost except that yeah, he like, reloads his fists like, like a shotgun. Really, <laughs> <laughs> like they could have added a sound effect to that and I would have been like, yep. Well, they basically it, do it with the score. They basically make it sound like it's a gun. <laughs> and that's another thing. This The score is so good in this movie, too. Oh, yeah. And they actually have uh, Vanessa Kirby plays a character who is actually related to Vanessa Redgrave's character from the first movie, which uh, I wouldn't have known if I hadn't watched the first movie, like a little bit before watching this movie. So that's like a nice little Easter egg. But also it does offer a little bit more of an emotional connection than maybe some of these other movies had had in that you really see this team come together. You see how they care about one another and you get a little bit more of a sense of Ethan Hunt who is very much a Tom Cruise avatar, you learn a little bit more about him and the things that he's had to give up. And based on what you've seen, it feels like it's very true to this character. I mean, it's really incredible to me how this franchise has come from like this almost like Hitchcockian spy thriller to just like one of the greatest action movies ever. It's pretty incredible. I couldn't agree with you more, Justin. I'm glad that you stand for this. Uh, in this category because it's definitely number three in this in that regard on my lists as well uh, in terms of action I think it's it's the best pure action film that we have this year for every reason that you said some of those action sequences are just so indelible that they just leave such a strong impact just the the clips of the fight scene in the bathroom in that were in the trailer were enough to make me go back and watch five Mission Impossible movies <laughs> so I could see this one. And it's just so much fun. It looks great. It's the culmination of everything that this franchise has been building towards. It it, it just like it takes all of the best pieces of, of all of the other films and puts them into this one amazing, excellent summer blockbuster that I just I I had so much fun watching. And it turns Tom Cruise into like a human wily e. coyote and that's pretty fun to see as well <laughs> it's definitely worth your time noah I, I i probably will see it at some point for the music alone you'll like it like the score is fantastic mm -hmm. i'm perfectly open to seeing it at some point it just it, it never got very high on my priority list tom cruise got his helicopter license to make this movie noah the least you could do yeah. is watch it <laughs> okay all right <laughs> Also, what's fun about the movies, the Mission Impossible movies at this point is that they really lean into the fact that Tom Cruise is a bit off kilter and actually kind of a, a lunatic, if you really think about mm -hmm. him. Uh, and that, and they make that work really well. <laughs> and they celebrate Tom Cruise running. 
I mean, yeah. by giving him so much to run on, as Henry Cavill just like walks walks away with it from him at a le- leisurely pace, <laughs> and it gives you the fight scene that everyone was waiting for from 2018, which was the Henry Cavill Alec Baldwin fight scene. <laughs> yes, yeah, like he even gets in a few punches, which I was he does, like, which that is was one of the parts like laughable. okay, you know. <laughs> So let's go to some of the smaller movies. Let's maybe, yeah, let's talk about films with maybe not as big a budget that we also loved. It's really funny when I was looking at like the budgets of some of these movies, I was kind of like, wow, a lot of these movies that feel massive to me, like had surprisingly small budgets, which is probably a testament to filmmaking. So good job, directors. (laughs) Let's start with you, Noah, this time. What's a bit of a smaller film that you still loved quite a bit? All right. So I was trying to get a number for the exact budget of the death of stalin that's definitely a low budget i will assume that you know a a character driven wordplay comedy did not require more than 15 million dollars to produce yeah i don't think it was a hundred million dollar movie so i think you're saying i highly highly (laughs) doubt it i mean steve buscemi is known as a diva but i mean i think not that bad My pick for this is The Death of Stalin because it is one of my favorite movies of the year. That's also a movie that is probably going to be in my top five. This is made from the same team that brought us In the Loop and the TV series Veep, both of which are brutally cynical examinations of politics and power dynamics and just how quickly that can tip over into the downright comedic or absurd. However, what set Death of Stalin apart for me is, unlike In the Loop or Veep, which in and of themselves are fictional, Death of Stalin does actually a really amazing job of sticking very, very closely to the actual historical record of the people and personalities that were around Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union at the time of his death, and what the process was of them like jockeying with each other to grab power afterwards. Now, of course, they're playing it as a black comedy, but they work in a lot of commentary on very much the absurdist nature of how power power politics operates. Uh, And the more I dug into the historical record and saw like how many small details they actually got right and actually managed to like work references to into the dialogue, the more it impressed me. I thought it was one of the funniest movies of the year. I thought it was one of the sharpest movies of the year that had the most to say. And I had so much fun watching it that it's one of the few movies of this year that I've already gone back and watched again. I would imagine it would reward repeat viewing because it's a lot of the comedy moves really fast. And Oh, yeah. I saw it for the first time uh, only a few weeks ago, and it's definitely a very, very funny, very twisted film um, with a like a pitch black heart at the center of it. It's kind of absurd to think that they hewed very closely to real events and real personalities <laughs> given what is seen on screen this is the sort of movie where you're laughing so hard you'll miss a lot of the jokes just because you're laughing at the last one uh, like the one that stuck out in my mind after stalin has like a, a brain hemorrhage and is unconscious for a while like the the committee members are like trying to move his body through his villa and there are like a couple of shots That's of so Steve, messed up. <laughs> there are a couple of shots of Steve Buscemi using his feet 
like using Stalin's feet to like point, okay, no, go this way. No, yes. no, this way. I completely <laughs> missed that the first time. And then the second time I saw it, I was like, oh my God, how did I miss that? And the turn that it takes at the very end is really piercing. So yeah, it's, it's a great film. That's a great choice. Yeah. No, it's, it's one of the must sees from this past year. I was a big fan of it as well. And, and even being familiar with uh, Armando Iannucci's work before this, there were moments in this movie that really like where you go from like outright farce to like just dead serious tragedy like on a dime there are moments where like the laugh like catches in your throat and you just go oh <laughs> like yeah. it really gets there which feels like the point of the whole project yeah. oh truthfully. yeah you know that feels like exactly what they're trying to hone in on when i saw the movie with some people we mostly had a good experience but there were some people who said like oh it started out really funny then it kind of petered off toward the end and i was like oh i think that's like part of the point yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, I, that's part of what i really liked about it I, actually i mean the last scene i don't want to spoil it but the, the 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 one of the last scenes uh with a certain character who has been uh uh, let's say outmaneuvered, I suppose, is just really like the 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 attention and and just how Yanuchi holds on that moment is just really terrifying. I don't know, you know, it's it's, it's just horrific. Yeah, it, it is savagely funny. Uh, it boasts a a great cast. So nice to see Michael Palin still acting. That's really cool. Shout out to my favorite Python. It's very much in line with uh, the great work that Inushi has done before, and uh, I hope he continues to do that. Okay, uh, let's go to you, Alex. Okay, so I have two choices for this because truly everything below blockbuster level is kind of a large gap so like it's a, a large really big drop variety off. yeah <laughs> so so i decided to go with yeah. a mid-budget film and then a like super low budget film the mid-budget film is my favorite film of the year still and that is steve mcqueen's widows I figured you were going to pick that one. It's a fantastic film. You can go back and listen to our episode on it if you want to hear in depth all the reasons why I think it's amazing. Everyone should go watch it. The fact that it got no attention at the box office and is getting no attention in awards season is just breaking my heart because it's such an incredible film with so much to say about so many different things. It looks great. It The acting is amazing. Everything about it is just fantastic. So go back, listen to our episode on it and hear in more depth why I loved it so much and why Justin liked it a lot too. Noah uh, spoke about it in our episode on Buster Scruggs, so you can hear what he liked about it as well. If I remember correctly, it was mostly that uh, Liam Neeson is good in it, which is kind of funny, given that it's a movie about strong <laughs> no, women. I, but anyway. What I meant was... what I meant. The record speaks for itself, Noah. It's a fine. Oh, obviously, <laughs> Viola Davis is the best part of the movie. Don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> but anyway, for my low-budget pick, it's a movie uh, that I got to see over the holidays. It's currently streaming on Hulu, so if you have a streaming subscription to Hulu, you should really check it out. It's a movie called Support the Girls. I couldn't find an actual uh, production budget on it, but it seems like a micro-budget film because it's basically, it takes place in only a few locations. Most of the acting cast are not super, super famous people, um, but it's written and directed by Andrew Bajalski, who is someone who I honestly don't have a long track record with. I tried to watch Computer Chess a number of years ago after it got a lot of attention from like the hipsters type of film critics out, out there, uh, and I just couldn't deal with it. It was just 
too much of a like oh it's like it's in black and white and it's about computer nerds in the 80s and they're trying to play chess and isn't it so it was just like a lot and i just couldn't deal with it but this movie is totally not like that at all so if you had this similar experience to me in that front don't let that bias you against the film. This is a movie that stars Regina Hall as a manager at a Hooters-like establishment, which again makes you think, oh, why would I want to watch that movie? It's basically like, I don't know if you guys remember the movie from like 2006 or 2008 called Waiting, dot, 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 um, with like Dane Cook and Ryan Reynolds. It's This movie is like, if that movie were good... <laughs> So Alex throwing down the gauntlet. <laughs> yeah, at waiting. I know. Like, ooh, bull take. <laughs> um <laughs> But it's like it's a it's a day in the life film, which is a type of film that I love so much, where it's just you start out the day the, the movie starts at the start of the day, it ends basically at the end of that day with a little bit of an epilogue thrown in there afterwards. And it's just about this woman played by Regina Hall who cares about her staff of mostly young, impressionable or vulnerable women, most notably played by Dylan Galula and Haley Lou Richardson, who both give really strong performances. Haley Lou Richardson really blew me away because I honestly, where I've seen her previously has been kind of as depressed in Columbus or terrorized in split or uh just constantly like like dealing with a terrible best friend in the edge of 17 and she's great in all those movies but here she's just like this jubilant bright-eyed bushy-tailed breath of sunshine in such a like really fun way so it was fun to see that side of her and yeah so it's just it's just about regina hall and she's trying to kind of manage these girls and trying to help them live their best lives and her life is kind of falling apart a little bit as you come to learn and just the stakes feel really low when you first start watching but as you get to know everyone and you feel their humanity start pulsing throughout the film you really start to feel invested in what's going on and in their stories and it's just it's just it's funny and it's and it's light in some ways and it's heavy in others and it just really it's just a great film that anybody could watch. You know, I watched it with my mom and she really liked it. Uh, and we don't tend to agree on many films. So I just think it's a great little movie and everyone should go out and see it. I'm glad that it's gotten a little bit of attention by critic groups. It was featured on President Barack Obama's best film of the year list. If oh, that right. makes that. you more interested, uh, <laughs> Regina Hall deserves all the accolades that she's getting right now for it. It's a, it's a, just a fantastic little film. So everyone should check it out. It's it's also the perfect example of what a small budget film can do. You know, it's it's I think that it's it's so amazing that film as a medium can be so elastic where you can have something as massive as Black Panther and something as like super super tiny as Support the Girls and both of them can work so well in different ways and sometimes in similar ways and be just a great rewarding experience. Yeah, I'm really excited to check that out. I'm definitely going to be watching that. And I did really enjoy um, Bujalski's, I think it was his last movie, which was a film called The Results. Yeah, um, that got a lot of good attention. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I was very surprised by how good that was. It's a very small movie in a lot of ways and and very much like very much a character study of I would say like like Guy Pierce and Kobe Smolders particularly, but it just really stuck with me. I was really impressed by 
seeing how these characters changed and how like the way in which he would sort of peel back the layers of these characters and you would see more and more to them as the, as the film went on, making them feel richer. Um, so I'm really excited to check out this one. Big fan of Haley Lou Richardson, who I thought, in my opinion, should have been nominated for her work in Columbus. But uh, that's just my that's just my opinion. And uh, yeah, and, and Regina Hall, who I just think is terrific and everything and has been an underrated actress for so long. I'm so glad to see her get a starring role, which apparently she's fantastic in, because why wouldn't she be? <laughs> Yeah, she is really tremendous. Like she she plays this character who's just like so so invested in the people around her and yeah, there's a lot more complexity there when it comes to herself and it makes you kind of question a lot of things about a lot of stuff. Like she's that type I really connected with her in a lot of ways, like the type of person who is just, you know, everyone else looks at her and thinks, "Oh, she's such an amazing person." And when she looks at herself, she doesn't see that at all. And it's really interesting to see something like that on screen when it's not about like some sort of crazy serial killer or like a detective who cheats on his wife or you know it's just like she's just a normal person going through life and in a way that i could really connect with and i think a lot of people could really connect with cool well um yeah like i said i look forward to seeing that the film that i'm going to spotlight is actually one that you and i have actually seen together alex um oh nice fairly recently uh, and right now, I, I, there are a bunch of other movies I'm going to see, but I feel like this is the film to beat for me for the year, honestly. And that's If Beale Street Could Talk, which is uh, the latest film from Barry Jenkins. I feel like I'm still kind of in some ways struggling to put into words why this film like really moved me. But just being over like overwhelmed by everything, <laughs> overwhelmed by the images, by the emotions, by the acting, which is among the best ensemble cast in any movie of the year, I think. And really kind of getting a sense of this world in a way that I think is meant to be reflective of memory. There are some ways in which certain aspects of, of life, I think, are idealized, but they're idealized in a way that feels very true to the characters and almost like clinging to these examples of strength and resiliency in the face of social injustice um, that I think are, are really empowering, especially because the film is about a woman whose partner has been falsely accused of rape and how it impacts her and her family. And I love the way the film kind of like takes its time. It lets a lot of moments breathe. And I think it's deceptively simple in its portraits of these characters. And that goes for the characters that get more screen time as well as the characters that get a limited amount of screen time. But I think really what Jenkins allows is he allows these actors to exist on screen. And honestly, I'm, there are a lot of moments when we just see these characters like in their own frame, like he gives them that space. And really by doing that, he humanizes them in a way that maybe another film wouldn't be able to accomplish. It really does make this film, which seems deceptively simple, I think a little more complicated. And especially in the way the film conveys a lot of these moments in slow motion, I think is also really key to capturing these moments as like almost a way to hold on to them in the face of injustice and have something to cling to. And just really captures that so effectively. I was just kind of blown away by it, honestly. And I do think it's a little bit different from Moonlight in that uh, there is like like voiceover is a huge part of this movie, whereas that was not 
um, really a part of Moonlight. But I think I think the voiceover is very effective. It really does justice to the novel, the James Baldwin novel on which this is based, of which I was not super familiar with. I am familiar with James, some of James Baldwin's writing, but this was a novel I was not familiar with at all. So it was really a new experience for me. Um, and just like I said, I really want to talk about how great the cast is here. Regina King is getting a lot of accolades and in my opinion, she deserves them. She has one incredible, like she has so many incredible scenes in the movie. One in particular in which she has to like balance all these conflicting emotions at the same time. And I'm just like, I don't even know how you get to that point as an actor, honestly, but just from top to bottom, every like Brian Tyree Henry shows up for a few scenes and he's fantastic. He just had an incredible 2018. And I would even say like, Emily Rios, who people may be familiar with for her work in Breaking Bad, plays a character who I think in another movie would just be an outright villain. And here just really fleshes out that character. And you get a real sense and sympathy, I think, for that character. And just the humanity and the compassion that Jenkins has for every character in this movie is so admirable. And um, I don't know, it's just an overwhelming experience. I, I was just kind of blown away by it. Yeah, I think that's a great pick. I mean, it is, I think when, when we walked out of the theater, after we stood quietly and didn't speak for about 10 minutes, <laughs> I think the thing that I said to you was that it was achingly beautiful. And I think that's what resonates with me still this many weeks later is just, it is an achingly beautiful film. It really captures just what is lost when someone is a victim of injustice in a way. And and I think that it's really a tremendous feat that they were able to do this with such a sensitive topic as well. I was very concerned when I heard that that was what this film was going to be about, about a man who was falsely accused of, of rape, because of course, false accusations of rape are incredibly rare, and they get an outsized amount of attention when they do occur, and they can have a very negative effect on uh, the likelihood that a woman, a woman will come forward with her story of sexual assault. Mm. Uh, and it, and it's overall a very bad thing for society when we, when we focus on those types of stories. Not that they don't happen, but just that we, we focus on them disproportionately to the amount that they ha that they actually occur. But this film handles it in such an amazing way. And I mean, they were making the movie right as the Me Too movement began. And so they were very aware of what type of worlds they were going to be releasing the film into. I think they do a really good job of, of showing that th in this situation, the issue is systemic racism and the ways in which prejudice from people in positions of power can leverage all sorts of horrible things against minorities and pin them against each other in ways uh, that help prop up this like the establishment and the the status quo and that all sounds very intellectual and very <laughs> removed and what's amazing about this film is that they're able to convey this in such an empathetic and human way where you are so invested in the humanity behind all of these types of intellectual theories of social justice and everything else and it just it connects it just connects so strongly and it's because of the acting it's because of the the direction and the cinematography the color in this movie mm -hmm. is incredible and it just 
everything about this movie shouldn't work. It should be this like misery porn kind of film where it's just look at these like long suffering African Americans being victimized by the state and look at how awful this these people's lives must be because of what they're forced to go through because of this in like inequality and injustice and that is certainly an aspect of the film and the story that they're telling but there is just so much beauty and so much connection and so much is alive in this film that it it manages to counterbalance all of that in a way which makes it even more emotionally effective as a result. Yeah. But Justin, this is your pick. I'm I'm talking way too yeah. much for your pick. <laughs> no, Sorry. No, no. I, <laughs> and yeah, I was I wasn't sure like how much to give away, and then I was like, well, you know, it doesn't. At, at the same time, like the movie is not necessarily about plot developments. Like it's it's not like that kind of movie necessarily. But yeah, there like this is someone who who did go through this trauma. That's clear. Uh, they have they do have the wrong person, um, but once you learn sort of what's informing that, it does illuminate. Like you said, Alex, it does illuminate this system of of oppression, and that's more um, that's more of the problem here. I did want also just just to add a little bit more. Like you were talking about the color in the film, and I think that's I, I love how he contrasts that with the stark black and white photography. In in some ways, like is almost like this abstraction of, um, of, I mean, of real life suffering of African Americans in this country, but also contrasting that with this, what we see in the film, this, this, this uh, portrait of, of strength and resiliency in the face of that, and really just create this space between those two points, which is really stirring. It's a really interesting contrast. And it's something that I feel like, especially as we approach award season, uh, I don't know how much attention it's going to get. I get the sense this is not going to get the same uh, kind of attention that Moonlight got, which even in, honestly was a little bit limited, more limited than I would have liked <laughs> at the time. But just for what it does as an artistic achievement, I think this is going to stand the test of time. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic film. Well, we also want to be able to spotlight foreign language films because especially I believe Noah probably has seen more of these than we have at this point. That would be my yeah. guess just because of where you live, Noah. But um, as we're creating this sort of separate category for it, it doesn't mean that we see these films as lesser than the films that we've talked about already. Just mm -hmm. that we want to give a chance to talk about these kinds of movies as well. So... With that in mind, do you want to start us off, Noah? I could. I was I was willing to let you two guys go first, but I can start. I do have to give a shout out to um, Roma, which is getting a lot of attention so far, uh, both popularly and with an award season. And it is one of the best films of the year. It's an amazing film. But that's not the film that I want to highlight. The film that I want to highlight is most likely going to be the highest placing non-English language film in my top 10 list. It is a movie that I have mentioned it on a what we've been watching segment earlier in the year, uh, but this is a movie called The Taste of Cement, and it is a faux documentary film by uh, a Syrian refugee living in Lebanon. What a lot of people in the West and, and in, in both the US and Europe fail to understand is that even though large numbers of Syrian and Iraqi refugees started to really 
enter Europe in larger numbers in 2015 uh, as a result of the Syrian civil war and the rise of ISIS. In the years prior to that, there had been a huge buildup of Syrian refugees in Turkey and Lebanon, which are countries that border Syria. Um, so that was a, a huge building crisis for years before refugees entering Europe started to become a major topic that people were paying attention to. So this is a movie that basically just sort of presents a tableau of of images of a couple days in the life of Syrian uh, workers in the capital of Lebanon working on a construction site. They sleep, eat, and basically have sort of like little tent houses niched out for themselves below ground. And then they go above ground every day. They go up into the, the giant concrete high rise that they happen to be working on then. They work throughout the entire day. They don't go anywhere else. And then they go back down to the basement level and sleep and then rinse, rinse wash, repeat. And there's no narrative structure to it. This is one of the most singularly unique movies I've seen all year. And it made a really big impact on me. There's no narrative. Like, there is a narrator. But the reason why I call it faux documentary is, okay, it's very clear that what you're seeing are, like, actual people going about their jobs. These aren't actors in a performance. And there is narration, but it's not clear, okay, is this one, per is this one particular person's story? Is this a combination of stories and experiences that just this one person is reading from is are these quote-unquote fictional experiences that are just sort of being uh cobbled together out of actual experiences it's never made explicitly clear you just hear this narrator describing what it's like to be a part of this city in this country that's not yours to be separate from it but to be part of like building the infrastructure for that city and then at night when the drilling when all of the like the shots during the day are filled with the sounds and noises of construction uh, and then at night of course it's silent there's no more noise and then simply through the use of images the the movie shows how these people are drawn back to thinking about their homeland and about uh, the war that has driven them from their homes and sent them to a, a country where they are foreigners, where they are, where, you know, language notwithstanding, they are foreigners, they're seen as foreigners, and they're treated as foreigners. Uh, and the way, the, I found the way that the movie would convey this without any, without, without the narrator saying, and then at night we dream of bombs and death, like nothing that explicit. You'll see someone lying on a cot and then it'll overlay that image. So you'll, you'll be seeing like sort of two images mashed together. It'll overlay this image of a guy sleeping on his cot with the image of bombs falling out of the, the bay of a bombing plane. Um, or you'll see clearly that there's a TV showing news footage. They're watching, the, they're watching TV at night as they're eating their dinner. And news footage is airing of, you know, bombs going off and of explosions in various parts of Syria. But you don't see the TV. You don't directly see the image that they're seeing. You see the plumes of smoke and debris reflected in their eyes. So the camera is focused on their eyes while their eyes are watching a TV screen. And when you do, in air quotes, directly see or experience moments of actual war and devastation, it's treated almost like a dream sequence, like something not of this world, which I think so perfectly captured what I think must be the mindset of people, be they civilians or soldiers, who experience war. And then later on, like how their minds try to process it, you like almost out of necessity, 
your mind treats it as something otherworldly or unreal or something that that happened then and sort of shuts it into its own like compartment i found it to be an incredibly beautiful visual way to convey that without explicitly saying it i've never seen a film actually try to do something that complex and that complicated and that sensitive but i think this film succeeds magnificently um it is i i would say it is easily the most original and unique film that i saw all year and for for a little while i wondered if it was going to end up being my film of the year it's it's not probably not going to be end up being number 1 on my list but it's it is it's going to be very high up there because this is one of the films that had the deepest impact on me. Yeah, and I think that specific shot had a really strong impact on you. I mean, I remember you talking about it in depth in the last episode that you talked about this, which was several months ago, the shot of uh, like the, the, the image and the eye and everything. The eyeballs, and, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you described it now in just as much of detail as you did then, and that was months ago. So it clearly yeah. left a really strong impact on you. It's definitely something that I'm going to have to get around to eventually. Uh, though It does seem like a very hard watch. It's been released uh, in Germany and France, and it aired on Finland television. Um, and it comes to Japan in 2019, March 2019. All right, yeah. so we all got to uh, go to Japan. <laughs> yeah, it's not currently available streaming anywhere that I can find. So, yeah, I guess just keep an eye out for it if it ever comes your way, because uh, it has the NOAA seal of approval. Um, <laughs> but you might have to wait a while. Well, I guess I could go next. I purposely picked something that I know neither of you have seen. So if I'm being honest, I might have another film that's probably my favorite foreign language film. But I wanted to talk about this one because I feel like it didn't get a lot of attention. And I think it's also a kind of film that you don't see a lot of. Uh, so before I name it, Alex and Noah, do me a favor. Name me one animated film that was made in China. I was not aware that this was going to be a pop quiz type situation. Justin. <laughs> Are you talking by chance about Big Fish and Begonia? No, I'm not. Is that ah! is that a film? Because I yes. well, so by you saying that, you obviously have more knowledge of Chinese animated film than I do. Because I didn't know any Chinese animated films before I saw my pick, which is called Have a Nice Day, which is a film from Liu Jen and is kind of just really stirring for what it is. And it's an animated film that <laughs> uh, don't take your kids to this one. It is a <laughs> super violent and at, at times terrifying film a crime film really that's what this is a crime story about a uh, a man who's a he's a driver for a gang in nanjing who decides to uh steal the drop money from his boss and uh use it to help his girlfriend's botched plastic surgery and pretty much everyone <laughs> anyone who's anyone <laughs> decides to come after this money and ostensibly use it to escape their position in life. So what you're saying is it's the Chinese animated version of No Country for Old Men. <laughs> um, it has some similar. I mean, I would say it doesn't have it's it's maybe a funnier movie in some ways than that one. And really what I was so interested in watching it was how it is even though it's an animated film, it actually makes a lot of use of stillness so that anytime there's any kind of actual animation, that is to say movements of the image, it comes off as really jarring and and really shocking, usually, which is especially good for these little bursts of violence that happen. And, and really what I think 
uh, he's trying to do with that it, in this sort of, I guess, more minimalist approach. Really, the, you, you notice that a lot of these sequences in which there's this kind of stillness to the image, it's almost like letting these characters linger in their delusions for a little bit longer until they're shocked out of that delusion by a certain burst of movement, a sudden burst of violence, or what have you, um, which is just a really effective way of using animation that I hadn't really thought about before um, I saw this. Uh, I was fortunate enough that this, like, I was able to see this, like, in a theater. The art house theater near me was showing this for, like, probably, like, a week or two, and I was like... How many times am I going to have a chance to see an animated film from China that has apparently gotten very good reviews? I was like, like this seems pretty cool, and it was really, it was just really a treat to to see this one. Well, I got to see it now that you've told me about it. Yeah, it's absolutely worth seeing. It's not a film if you're looking if you're looking for redeemable characters. This is not the film for you. Um, <laughs> it is not that at all. It is also very, um, it is very uh, politically topical to the point where actually there are moments in the film where characters are listening to bits of Donald Trump's victory speech, I guess you could say. Uh, and it just kind of, it doesn't really like, I don't know if it overtly comments on the events of the film per se. It just kind of adds this texture and this sense of like the present moment to the events that we're watching. There are all kinds of crazy twists in the film. It sort of has like a noir uh, thing to it in that characters will, you know, think they know exactly what's going on and then prove that they actually don't <laughs> have any idea what they're doing. Like they haven't fully prepared for the, uh, for the implications of their actions. I was just really impressed by it just as like a different kind, like using animation in a way that I hadn't seen before using, like I said, more of a minimalist approach and using that to, really show how desperate these characters are, how desperate they are to escape their station. And there are definitely scenes in this film that are really gorgeous to look at. But it really is when those moments, when you have these moments of, of motion, of animation, they really puncture the images that we're seeing. And it's really effective uh, thematically as well as just, you know, viscerally. Yeah, I, I'd seen that that had been camped out towards the top of your letterboxed best of the year list all year and i had never heard of it and kept forgetting to ask you about it so thanks for letting me know what it is uh do yeah. you know if we can watch it <laughs> uh that is a good question oh it's available on shutter interesting so if you subscribe if you subscribe to shutter you can watch it there or you can rent it on all of the usual places i i do think the biggest compliment that i can pay the movie is it it made me and I think great movies can do this. They make you rethink how you watch movies. You, they make you realize you can watch movies in many different ways. And that was really, that was a really cool thing. All right. Well, Alex, I'm interested to hear your pick for a foreign language film. Okay, so mine is not that interesting, um, but it is, I'm happy to have the opportunity to talk about it uh, mm -hmm. because I couldn't talk about it on our episode because I had not had the chance to see it yet and that is a film by alfonso Cuarón. it is called roma it is excellent i enjoyed your conversation about it but i wish that you guys had a chance to talk about it a little bit longer because i think you would have been able to get into some of the stuff that i liked so much about the film i won't get into like what the movie is or anything like that because everyone knows uh especially right around now it's it's a, like a really major film in the discussion and 
what I want to say that I really liked about it was I thought that it really captured this delicate line between working for a family and being a part of a family that is so difficult to express and that I don't think I've ever seen in quite that way before. I think that the way that they handle that is just so interesting and something that I can personally relate to having been in similar situations professionally, taking care of other people's children, um, being welcomed into their homes, and yet not actually being a part of their family. It's, there's this kind of precarious situation at play. And I think that they capture that so well. And I think that they use that as sort of an interesting metaphor for the main character's status in life in general. She is in this kind of in-between state of life where she is sort of, she has nothing of her own and yet she is giving so much of herself to others. It's just such a precarious place to live in. And it forces you to be passive in a lot of areas where maybe you would rather not be. It makes it difficult to chart out your own path, your own personality, your own, because so much of who you are is wrapped up in your job, you know, which is a job that for this character never ends. It's a 24 hour commitment. She notably doesn't even get to be the one who ever stays behind. Uh, there are two maids in the household and the one maid always gets to stay and watch the house and clean the house and take care of the dog. And she is always the one who is called on to uh, travel with them, which sounds great. You know, it sounds nice, but and it's because the family has such affection for her and the children have such affection for her and she gets the opportunity to go to all of these amazing places that she maybe wouldn't have been able to otherwise but it also means that she never really gets any time to just be herself and the few moments that she does that we see her get the opportunity to be herself are just small moments where she's just you know in the back of the house washing dishes or on on the roof hanging clotheslines and even those moments are almost always interrupted and she's just trying to find this like quiet solace and she's not upset about it she's not thinking oh my god what a miserable life she's really trying to make the most of it but there is something sort of bittersweet about it and i i've heard a lot of dialogue around the film try to beatify her and say that she's this like incredibly saintly figure and i find that bizarre because i found her to be incredibly human and incredibly uh, complicated because of the positions she's forced to be in all the time and because of what she has to go through as a person where she never is allowed to be herself even when we see her in a romantic relationship this is clearly her first relationship and she's trying to be present but she's also aware that like she's you know, performing the role of girlfriend almost for this person. So that's not even really a candid moment. And when she lets her guard down with this person, he he really treats her in, in such an incredibly cruel way. Mm. So yeah, I just I just think that it's so amazing. And it all comes down to those two scenes. The one scene, which is so, so brutal when when the child is born, where the veil just drops and she really she really gets to ex she has to experience that moment and even even then she is surrounded by people who are strangers to her and who are not family they're not that they're, there's not an, an affection towards her in that room there's a professionalism every every moment in her life is this is forced to be, to be on display for people who she has these precarious relationships with. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's just a really, really interesting thing to see in a film. And I think that it really 
it it really is just so expertly made and i think that the the cinematography with which coron chooses to to utilize in the film really helps capture that kind of quality of like being on display and like being an observer inside of a home not feeling uh part of it and by utilizing all these really long takes and these wide angles and and crowd shots and everything like that. I just I really think that this is a, a masterpiece of a film that's it's really incredible and it's it's just got so much in there that I'll never forget. This is that rare film that you know it, the the hype around this film has been building for a long time. Like as soon as reviews started to come out, months before it was released on Netflix, reviews are coming out. One of the best films of the year. This is that rare film that like was hyped to the heavens for a long time, and it not only met but exceeded that praise when I finally got the chance to see it. There are a lot of cases where like a, too much hype can kind of kill the movie and you can't just experience it for what it is. This is that rare movie that in no way was I did I feel let down like, oh, I was expecting something better than this. Like it absolutely <laughs> matched what I was expecting it to be. Yeah, and like you really, you really, at the end of the day, you really care about those people and that family. Yeah. And, and the way that I, the way that I described it, it kind of seems like the family is like terrible to her all the time or something. And that's not the case at all. Like the car the family can oftentimes be very warm and very inviting and like genuinely seems to have affection for her and thinks of her as a member of their family sometimes. And that's the thing that is so interesting is that like it's, it would be so easy to make this cat, this family be terrible or maybe make the kids be great but the parents be terrible and that's it's really not the situation like the mother in this movie is going through a lot you know and she is definitely not her best self and oftentimes our main character is forced to be the brunt of of that in a way that is unfair but feels human but also it really just did it shows the way that she is not a member of that family at the end of the day because she can be the one that can be kind of treated as subservient in these moments when the when the mother needs someone to be subservient to her but i just i think about that scene in the hospital and my experience of watching it was this is so horrible for her and then i had this moment of of thinking like and oh my god this poor woman because if you haven't seen the film she has this like this terrible sequence where she has to give birth, but she, before that, she goes into labor due to a series of complicated events, which, despite that description, are not fun or or, or whimsical in any way. Um, no. <laughs> and and she's with her, she's with the grandmother of the family. They were going to get something for the new baby and and whatever. And so, just by happenstance, the grandmother happens has to be the one who is like shepherding this woman through all this whole experience. And we've seen the grandmother, and she seems like a nice person, and you know, but she's clearly not like a a strong relationship with this woman and so i just the thought occurred to me like oh my god this poor old woman also had to go through this horrendous experience like she didn't ask for any of this this is just this person who works for her daughter and she just had to go through like one of the most uh, incredibly trying emotional experiences of this woman's life and she's just this old lady who like had to be there and had to deal with it and that must have been so upsetting for her on a whole other level (laughs) and i think it's a testament to a movie like this that i personally had that thought and that emotional reaction to this fairly tertiary character uh and their experience of this terrible situation as well and i think the movie is just filled with things like that yeah it's excellent it's like among (laughs) it's i mean like if i'm being honest like i this one is like higher than have a nice day but i wanted to like give a chance to especially for you to talk about it yeah i mean we said yeah we said a lot about it in our view i think i was just so taken especially reading your review noah 
of this film mm-hmm. and the way you talked about the water and sky in that review mm-hmm. and like how this film like does create and actually something that you mentioned Alex about this being like how being in between worlds which I think is matched visually with the uh, with uh, yeah. the opening shot as well as uh, some of the later shots the fact that we do get a lot of sky in this film you also begin and end with at one point a plane clearly flying across the uh the field of the camera yes i have no idea if that was intentional or if corona's just like oh we happen to get two shots of yeah no no i believe it was intentional i mean there's a lot of mirrored stuff in the whole film i mean something that a critic brought to my attention which i didn't realize was that you know you have uh there's a scene during that wildfire sequence where the child there's a child there who is dressed up in this like kind of elaborate spacesuit costume playing Mm -hmm. and he's coming from like the I, i think he's coming from the left of the screen and going inward and then when she returns to her home village uh, or not her home village, but the village where her former boyfriend is living, you see a boy in what amounts to like a paper box over his head coming from the exact opposite way. So coming from the right side mm. of the screen inward, playing in the exact same manner, oh, uh, wow. drawing like not... a very clear parallel. Yeah, I didn't I did notice that, that when that I saw all. the film either. But I think that it's filled with all sorts mm. of these types of mirrorings and these sorts of reflections of status and another aspect of status is something that I've learned after seeing the film the closer you are to Mexico City the further away the planes are in terms of how like high they are in the sky Hmm. and the when you get further out into the countryside into the more rural and poorer areas that's closer to the airport and so the plane is actually going to be much lower so so just in the visual representation of how high the plane is in the sky is also a a status symbol as it were uh and so i think that the insertion of the plane in those shots are very significant and purposeful so it's just such a well-crafted film in that way that there's so many small details that really build and build and build to something that is really powerful emotionally yeah and and Quaron was like you said it is his own cinematographer here i believe isn't he also the editor he is yeah, yeah. that's just that's just incredible to me especially like it's it's just his baby it's his baby he's like this is yeah. the film that he's wanted to make you know it's his passion project for a decade i think this is that rare example of where like you really could point to the director and say like this is entirely his project in a lot of films it's kind of overblown to lay everything at the feet of the director um or or at least oversimplification but that's definitely not the case with roba yeah yeah i mean when you write like he he wrote it he directed it he was a cinematographer he was the editor he was integral in casting all of these fairly unknown people Mm. in Mm -hmm. the film i mean it's it's an incredible feat it it stands in stark contrast like as much as i love ryan coogler i would in no way try to say like oh black panther is ryan coogler's film like he was clearly controlling like all of the processes of that movie like no no there were a lot of teams yeah well like i think that i think that is a more interesting discussion of like how a creative force with some with a point of view and something to say injects itself Mm. into a machine and like manages to steer it into a direction that it has Mm. otherwise not gone before yeah you know so that's it's a very different sort of question and i think equally as impressive in that way given the challenges that kugler had to face but yeah. 
yeah, I think that they are very different uh, questions at the end of the day. In summation, in summation, this was a freaking amazing year for films, both massively large and incredibly small and intimate. So, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Bring it on, 2019. Okay, guys. Well, we're on to our last category here, and that is going to be our favorite performances. I feel like there's so many here. I don't I don't even know if the one I chose is necessarily my favorite performance. It's just a performance that I wanted to talk about, honestly, because I feel like it's not going to get any attention. I'm going to talk about, well, a movie that I didn't get to talk about on the podcast, which is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, but um, which is a film that I loved, uh, quite frankly. But the performance that I really wanted to talk touch on because I don't think it's going to get any attention unfortunately is uh, Zoe Kazan who plays Alice Longabout in huh. the fifth sequence in this movie which is the girl the gal who got rattled um, Kazan is one of those performers like I've I've always really liked I actually the first time I ever saw her was on stage in the Martin McDonough play A Behanding in Spokane back in 2010, uh, which is where I first became familiar with her. And since then, she's been mostly in supporting parts and things. Um, she was in uh, the television miniseries Olive Kitteridge. She's been, she was, of course, in The Big Sick from 2017. Very good there. And I just really love the kind of like character she's playing here and how she's able to do so much with so little. It's such a small performance in a way, but it's so perfect, I think. It's it's not it's very understated and very true to who that character is, who is this person who's basically for her life has been told like what she's going to be and hasn't really had a space to explore who she is or what she wants out of life. And part of what I love about this sequence is her character kind of discovering that for the first time in her life. And there's some really, she has some great uh, dialogue scenes with uh, Bill Heck, who plays uh, the man who uh, eventually proposes to her, um, who is the leader of this wagon train. And they have some wonderful, I would say, philosophical conversations um, that are also almost like almost the way of them getting to know each other, but also getting to know their philosophies in life and, and what they would like to be, perhaps. And there's one scene in particular that I want to spotlight, which I think is just an incredible little scene of acting in which which is the proposal in which this uh, wagon train leader proposes to her. And it comes as such a shock to her, not just because it's a proposal, but also because it's pretty clear this wasn't even remotely a possibility in her mind. And she has to adjust to that. And she does it with like this almost like I don't even know how to describe it. It's like this like open mouthed kind of like taking in everything moment that's just that that the Coens let breathe and that I just think Kazan nails and just really makes it such a relatable human moment that's also very funny <laughs> because it's just so it's such a genuine reaction I really love this character I don't want to say too much about what happens but there's just something about what she does in this movie and and how relatable and just this kind of like quiet strength to this character that has been, I think, like repressed for so long. 
Um, and seeing this character kind of making these discoveries within this space is just was just really satisfying to me. And I thought Kazan really pulled off really effectively. Now, I'm glad that you chose to highlight that. That was a really great performance. And I, I agree. I think that is whether or not a person comes down on liking Buster Scruggs, I think that's one of the unabashedly ex- like most excellent parts of the entire movie. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty good sequence for the most part. I, I, you listened to that episode, you know, I had more issues with it, with that sequence in particular than Noah did. Um, but I, I mean, I thought that the casting of Zoe Kazan in that role was pretty interesting because she's not the first choice that you would consider for something like that. She has kind of, to me anyway, she has a very modern sensibility about her. And so it was interesting to see her in that sort of setting and that sort of role. And I think that she made it her own and she really was effective in the moments that she needed to be and you really cared about her. Yeah, so that's it's interesting that that's your favorite performance of the year. That's, I mean, that's the one I wanna, that's the one I wanna highlight. I, I feel like I have too many favorites to try to pick one, but that's one that really stuck out for me. And it's one that I figured you guys would probably not have. <laughs> so that was a consideration as well. Okay, well, Noah, let's go to you. You want to name your favorite performance? The favorite performance that I want to highlight, it really is one of my absolute favorites. And unfortunately, so far, it is a performance that is being completely ignored and overshadowed in the midst of awards season, which there are a lot of great performances out there, but I think it's it's a damn shame this one is getting lost in the mix. It is a performance and a movie that we have all discussed extensively, I'm speaking, of course, of Charlize Theron in Tully, which instantly mm. became one of my favorite movies of the year. Uh, it's still one of my favorites of the year. Th- th- there's so much about the film that's good. And again, we have a whole episode where we went in detail on it. But I think front and center, because it is a movie focused on Theron's character, front and center of why it's such a good movie is Theron's performance. And her ability to just really sink into and inhabit the very, very normal and relatable and mixed emotions of being just a regular housewife and mother. And how there are joys and frustrations aplenty that just sort of mix together over the course of your day. The way that the movie, the way that the character's written, the way that Throne handles the character and is able to inject so much personality into even the smallest of moments. Like, I think I mentioned this in our episode as well. One of my favorite parts of that whole movie is after she's just had a complete, like, blow-up at the head of her son's school. She just, like, has this complete meltdown when they start talking about, well, you know, your child's special and that's kind of difficult for us, blah, blah, blah. The, the camera stays in the car and she puts the baby and, like, walks around to get into the driver's seat but then, like, stops and you just see her through the back window and she just screams for a brief moment <laughs> before walking back around and getting the car. Like little moments like that that were just so powerfully and effectively delivered. And that's the sort of thing that, yeah, you could think of a scene like that. You could try to write a scene like that and direct it, but you need the right performer to bring it home and make it feel like this is a real person that you're seeing. A very close runner-up for me is the lead actress in Roma. For ve- Again, for very, very similar reasons. There's so many ways that even, even without being explicit, both of these actresses are able to inject so much life into their roles and into their mm-hmm. characters and make them part of this world of the film. Uh, my absolute favorite example of that type of acting in this whole year was easily Charlize Theron. Yeah, I agree entirely. It's one of my favorite films of the year. And I and she was an honorable mention on my on my favorite performances list just because of what you said and and. and because of everything that you said and also just the way that she manages to balance tone in her performance is really really impressive like 
a Diablo Cody script can be really difficult to to perform due to the fact that you really you have to be able to be kind of funny and wry and sarcastic while also feeling like a real person and like make the the audience care about you and just have like this real emotional center to you it's it's something that i don't think everyone can pull off and the people who do it well don't get enough credit for because it just feels easy when she's in the role when she's doing that but it's because of how great she is you know it's it's actually a very challenging task so yeah i definitely agree that's definitely one of the one of the best performances of the year. All right, Alex, you're up. It is time. If you guys remember from last year, I had a hard time kind of just talking about one performer. I'm really not good at that sort of thing. And uh, I was even worse this year. So instead, I decided to kind of break it down into into different types of uh, situations. Like, so first, break it I was down, like, Alex. well... <laughs> First, I thought, well, what is the best ensemble of the year? Because that's, you know, it's really hard when there's a couple of performances in a movie. It's hard to say, well, all three of these are really good, but let me rank them against each other. Because when they're all good from the same film, they're really working in concert in a really powerful way. And for me, I had to just acknowledge the favorite as an incredible ensemble of performances i mean led by olivia coleman and rachel weiss and emma stone but even down to nicholas holt and joe alwyn and mark gaddis like that's in my mind where the ensemble kind of ends and every single one of these performers are just giving such an incredible performance i mean there's so much pathos and sexiness and and like just terribleness and hilarity in these roles and in what these actors are bringing to the to the table and it's just so hard for me to spotlight one or or say this is what's really great about this film because it just all works in concert in such an excellent way so then i said okay well putting aside ensembles like what's an actor who i thought just did an amazing job this year like above anyone else and i couldn't stop thinking of brian tyree henry uh, but but not for one particular role because he actually mm -hmm. had three incredible roles this year in If Beale Street Could Talk, in Widows, and in uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, three very different films, uh, mm. where he has three incredibly different roles. And what he's able to do in all three of those roles individually would be very impressive. The fact that the same actor was able to do them with the, where all of these movies are released in the same year is just kind of mind blowing if you really think about it. Like his scene in If Beale Street Can Talk is just so, so incredible where he just kind of takes over the movie for seven or eight minutes and he just, it's like you see this like false bravado and like, kind of jovialness that he starts out the scene with slowly kind of wash away as he gets deeper and deeper into his true feelings about having been to jail uh, and having been forced to take a plea deal for a crime that he did not in any way commit and the effects that that had on him and the effect of being caged like that has had on him and it just like it you just sink deeper and deeper and deeper into his emotional like vulnerable self in a way that is just really really incredible to watch and then he's in a movie like widows where he just plays this kind of charismatic villain where he just like this scene where he terrorizes viola davis's dog is just <laughs> unbelievable it's just like i mean i'll remember that forever it's just such That's an iconic biggest jolts in that movie he was like, whoa we're going there <laughs> 
And he's so masterful in it where he just like teases Viola Davis and they're in the audience just and has you on the edge of your seat the entire time. He is just you are in the palm of his hands just like that dog is and just like Viola Davis is. And it's just it's so masterful and like terrifying and still like charismatic in a way that is almost perverse. And then in Spider-Verse, he plays Miles Morales's dad who's just like this good guy who wants what's right for his son but he has a hard time like actually talking to him about stuff without kind of coming down on him too hard and he just feels such like a relatable loving father figure uh in that movie and it's just like he's and there's so much warmth and and it's just it's incredible that one person can do all of that so i had to give him like a special like designation for best multiple performances in a year uh but that still doesn't answer the question of what's my favorite performance right (laughs) (laughs) so i decided that if i had to really narrow it down and i took all of those people off the table my favorite performance of the year is uh timothy chalamet in beautiful boy because he carries that film on his back and make and elevates it well beyond what that movie really should be you know it he is so emotionally vulnerable and so alive on screen that it just takes my breath away every time that i see him i think this is a brilliant follow-up to his performance in call me by your name last year and I think he's an all-time great actor, and I can't wait to see what he does next. I mean, I spoke in depth about his performance in Beautiful Boy earlier this year when I reviewed it, and um, it's honestly, it's hard for me to talk about because I just felt so connected to him and so impressed by how real he could be in those moments of just quiet desperation and like active rebellion against yourself and against society and against your family and just like... It's just such a kind of like tired, cliche sort of role that he breathes such life into. And I think he deserves all the credit that he's getting right now. And I just can't wait to see what he does next. Yeah, I still have to say that one. But spoilers was my favorite. He was my favorite performance uh, by an actor in a leading role in 2017 for Call Me By Your Name. To me, just he makes it look easy. <laughs> like he just has yeah. he just kind yeah. of just has this way of moving and just getting inside the skin of a character that just feels like he's living it. And I'm I'm really intrigued to see, like you said, I'm intrigued to see what he does next. I'm intrigued to see him in, in Beautiful Boy. And uh, I know that he's like kind of become like, or it's, at least it seems to me, like become maybe your favorite actor working today, Alex. <laughs> I mean, he's definitely my favorite young actor. You know, yeah. he's definitely my favorite up and coming actor. Mm-hmm. It feels like too much to say, like, favorite actor period but he just has impressed me so much like i like you said like i said he's just so alive on screen he's so present in the moment everything feels spontaneous and original and real in like a tangible way like i know that person i've seen that person he's and his motivations feel real his he feels genuinely in this role he feels genuinely at war with himself in a way that feels just vulnerable and realistic in a way where it could feel melodramatic and tired, you know, and it just, it's just really, really impressive. But 
I also have some honorable mentions because uh, <laughs> there was just way too many good things this year. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to like briefly run through them like super fast. Natalie Portman being in Vox Lux and Annihilation playing polar opposite characters like Annihilation. She's super, super repressed and removed and just like this emotional like like storm is brewing underneath her and she like never lets it show versus Vox Lux where she is just this like raw nerve of emotion just exploding out of her is just it's really funny kind of double feature to consider. Tony Collette we didn't talk about it all in Hereditary she gives I think one of like maybe the best female performance of the year like just in how she's able to play the small moments in that movie and the big moments in that movie so so effectively mm -hmm. yeah regina king and beale street we talked about a little bit when we were talking about mm -hmm. the film in a in a in a movie full of amazing performances her performance is the one that a week two weeks three weeks later that i'm thinking about the most like she has a scene where she puts on a wig and takes off a wig and then puts it back on in the mirror and it's like unbelievable and you're just like how is that <laughs> how like that's literally all that happens in the scene and it's just like you i could watch that for two hours so she's incredible it's like you're watching the dialogue in her head but purely visually purely through her acting yeah it's really really impressive like keith stanfield in sorry to bother you that's a movie that is just a lot is going on like there's a huge diversity of tone and like reality in that movie and he is this grounding emotional center which is really really hard to do and he just does it so well michael b jordan and black panther is an iconic villain i talked about regina hall already in sport the girls which i think is great uh laura dern in the tale is a movie mm -hmm. that was released on hbo earlier this year and she's just really really incredible playing a real life person slowly coming to realize the trauma that she had gone through as a child she's really 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 good at playing the complexity of that type of situation steve buscemi as in the death of solon i think is so so good as being this guy who is just constantly trying to be ahead of everyone and yet eternally behind everyone uh he really minds a lot of humor and a lot of comedy out of that uh and then the turn that he takes at the end which really isn't a turn it's who he always was um but we were a bit distracted early on it just he really lands those moments in a in yeah. just a chilling way and i think that they perfectly use steve buscemi's like inherent likability to a really really good effect mm -hmm. in that movie yeah. And lastly, Dakota Johnson in Suspiria, yeah. which is just an insane movie, and it's an insane role that she has. Yeah, that's another one of the films I just have not been able to get to yet. Yeah, but. I mean, it's just, it's it's a movie that's a lot, and it definitely isn't for everyone. I enjoyed it, if I could say that. Um, <laughs> but what what she's able to do in that movie is just like, it feels like the most Dakota Johnson role. Uh, yeah. Like, she's been circling this type of kind of young ingenue who's kind of in over her head, but really she's has is more knowing than she's letting on. She's like kind of circled that a couple of times in a few movies. And this is just the the culmination of that as like an epic performance. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's my list of of all of my favorite performances this year. I would like to throw up my own. I had two honorable mentions that were sort of like just under, just in case one of you guys came out with Charlize Theron before I did. Um, Cynthia Erivo from uh, Bad Times at the El Royale. Mm -hmm. uh, was yeah, she's really good in that movie. That was, that, that was 
Uh, I mean, she was amazing in that movie um, and in Widows. I, I felt like she got more. I wish her. I wish her character had had more to do in Widows, but I really feel that she got to like really get into her her character in Bad Times at the El Royale. Uh, and Bad Times at the El Royale is also one of the movies that I heavily considered for a uh, favorite small budget film. And Viola Davis from Widows. Yeah. So something that I think that I like noting, we have a lot of women, especially a lot of a, a lot of women of color that we're all thinking of top performances of the year. Yeah. And I mean, they deserve it. We're yeah. not giving them special consideration. It just was incredible opportunities that these women really delivered on. Pay attention, Academy. <laughs> I also want to say quickly that I don't have Lady Gaga on that list, but Lady Gaga in the Shallows scene is probably still like the most memorable moment of the year for me. Uh, so that deserves some type of recognition as well. The only things I wanted, just as honorable mentions, I just wanted to list three performers who legitimately terrified me this year. One is Daniel Kaluuya in Widows, playing the Enforcer. Um, to, How does he get his eyes to do that? I know, and like, and like, especially when you consider what he did with his eyes in something like Get Out, to in it for a completely different effect. Um, man, just continues to impress me. And then the other people are um, Simon Russell Beale, who plays Beria in The Death of Stalin, who's just like so freaking entitled and just like and like knows the ins and outs of everything and just is like it just terrifies you that this guy would like possibly be in power he wears his slime like a freaking oh my gosh yeah like that was the oh gosh some of the things he says are just wow um and the other performance is Anne dowd in hereditary <laughs> for a completely different reason <laughs> terrified me just just through a sheer sense of conviction and devotion to payment uh <laughs> it's it's because she's the it's because she's the one who would have gotten you justin <laughs> <laughs> i am still not able, i'm still not able to fully deal with hereditary like oh my god <laughs> oh man you gotta start dude it's so it's so fulfilling okay well uh before we get even more distracted let's talk about where we can find everyone these days so uh noah start us off in addition to my work with uh the cinema joes you can get all of my written reviews and other musings on my blog francenoir.blogspot.com my worst films of 2018 list the first time i've ever done a worst list very exciting is up and my best soundtracks and best films of 2018 lists i am currently planning to have up by the end of january okay very nice. As for myself, I am at uh, The Cinemaverick on Letterboxd, and my website is thecinemaverick.com. I have a best movies of 2017 list, if you're curious about that. Curious about what my picks Yay! were for uh, a year gone by. Um, which I'm, I'm pretty proud of, actually. So check that out. And uh, we'll go It's to really good, you guys. You should read it. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Alex. Uh, and let's go to you, Alex. Okay, so you can find me on Twitter at Media Thinkings and over at Letterbox at Media Thinkings. Over there, I am almost finished with my top 10 list, which means that my current this year in film list will go away. That's my annual tradition. After after I put out my top 10 list, I, I start the next year and I delete all of the, those rankings. So if you're interested in the 75 movies that I've seen so far and 
which one I thought was number 48 and which one I thought was number 62, now's your time to watch it uh, before I delete the list. <laughs> um, Curious picks and numbers. Uh, <laughs> well, I know people are invested, so I want to give them the chance to see before it goes away. Uh, and you can also follow me over on our show Twitter account, at Cinemajos. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to us over at Apple Podcasts. Really, really helps the show if you guys can follow us on Twitter and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. So please, if you're enjoying this, or even if you're not, give us a chance with a review over there. Uh, yeah, and you know, we we got a lot of fun stuff coming up if you like the Oscars in the next few weeks. And if you don't, we'll see you in March, everybody. <laughs> Well, we want to thank all our listeners, uh, and uh, I guess this is where we'll sign off. Bye. Farewell, everyone. <laughs>Okay, so let's just forget that then, and I'll start over again. <laughs> Didn't we talk okay. about this? <laughs> well, I think like you said, I, I guess like you said in the chat that this is our favorite, right? And I don't think we ever like... No one said no, Alex. I disagree. <laughs> yeah. I can't find any... Um... Webs oh wait 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 hold on hold on hold on oh no that's that's something else <laughs> okay well, we'll save we'll save that for the rant against international distribution windows um, yes, later in our episode but... <laughs> that'll be a bigger topic yeah um... <laughs> oh wait 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 hold on hold on hold on foreign documentaries definitely a huge priority on a lot of moviegoers lists <laughs> uh, oh, don't get me started some, sometimes it should be <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, wait 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 hold on hold on hold on hail payment as as we all as all us fans of hereditary say i don't say that just for the record <laughs> on, that, on that note hail satan and have a nice day very much so okay well we're gonna wrap it up there we've wait, talked what no i'm not co-signing that <laughs> <laughs>